Welcome to On the Side with Jackie London, a BS-free podcast where we're talking all things food, nutrition, and wellness to help you build healthier habits that stick. As a registered dietitian, author, journalist, and former clinician turned content creator, I've heard and seen it all. Join me each week as I debunk diet myths, explore the latest wellness trends, and answer all of your pressing listener questions. Plus, we'll hear from a guest who will kick off each interview weekly with a soup-to-nuts rundown and, okay, sometimes analysis of what they're eating, cooking, ordering in, or where they're dining out with tons of delicious ideas, lots of laughs, and plenty of pro tips in between. The one thing I can actually guarantee, I'll serve up tangible, actionable strategies to help you apply the science behind what works to what works best for you. Listeners, welcome back to another episode of On the Side with yours truly, Jackie London. I am by myself today, which feels right. You know what I mean? It feels like a nice little fall reset here. Am I right? I mean, we could all just use a moment. I feel like so many of you must be feeling that kind of relief, (laughs) unbridled relief and or or both, or both, some extent, to whatever extent you're experiencing this. If you have kids who are going back to school, I know there's also a tremendous amount of anxiety associated with that. So my best of luck and only the best for you and your families this time of year. So I wanted to take a moment, just given the state of things. I mean, for me over here, it's like, I mean, I always feel like it's back to school and I'm 30 fucking six. You know what I mean? Like, I always feel like the beginning of September when I'm recording this, you guys will be listening to this smack dab in the middle of September. But I always feel like the, like this time of year is like, I'm scared. Do I need to get a binder? Do you guys remember those pencils that had like the fringe at the top? They were kind of like where you could like get a slinky attack. Does anyone remember what I'm talking about at all? You know, like they were like fun looking pencils. This is like that binder and trapper keeper time of year, except that that really makes me sound a thousand years old. I'm going to focus on food because that's what we're here to talk about. Am I right? Okay. (laughs) Listeners, I wanted to give you guys an update about some of what's been happening in the field of food and nutrition, some of the kind of big bucket topics that have come up. It's sort of like a trends episode, but it's a little bit more of like a state of the union, a state of the foodian, foodian, foodian. I don't know. (laughs) That sounds insane. Do I sound insane? You can say yes, because I won't know. You'll, You'll just be talking to yourself in your own car. Okay. All right. So let's talk about some stars versus some scams in food and nutrition, especially online. I'm seeing so much simply by being on the platform that is TikTok. If you're on TikTok, say hi. It's at Jacqueline London. There's no RD in that. It's RD on Instagram and all and Twitter and all other social media platforms, but I locked myself out of my original account on TikTok. So now it's just at Jacqueline London. Sad, but true. So I, I thought we would take a moment, check in, talk a little bit about the scams versus the stars when it comes to what's happening in food and nutrition marketing. A little bit like a wellness trends of 2022 episode, but a little bit more focused on, you know, sort of the pros and cons of, of what I've been seeing a lot of lately. So let's get started. All right. The first thing I want to cover 
I'm going to start with the cons first. So if you want to just hear the pros, you're going to want to skip ahead. But I say that I want to start with the cons because I always feel like we got to elevate at the end. You know what I mean? We got to we got to leave on a high note, feeling good and feeling like we got this and feeling like we're more empowered, more knowledgeable, more informed and more actually capable of taking care of ourselves than when we started. So let's start off with some of the scams that are happening online. And these are more nuanced scams because as you, my listeners, long time listeners well know, but if you're new to the podcast, then to give you a little bit of an update, my background is very heavily focused in food products and the marketing around healthy food products, as well as media. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about the media and product elements of what I've been seeing out there lately versus some of the diets that we've covered on on this podcast before. So if you are curious or interested in any more of these topics, tell me, just tell me call me. You can't really call me. Okay. You can leave a very wonderful review for me on Apple podcasts. That would be amazing. Tell me more about what you want to hear about for today. I'm going to talk a little bit more about the media marketing and consumer product space spaces. So as always, you can feel free to leave me a five-star rating and a review with the topics that you'd like to hear more about on Apple podcasts. And you can always reach me on Instagram is probably the easiest place at Jacqueline London RD. All right, here we go. Let's start with some scams. Number one, (laughs) I'm seeing this everywhere lately. And I know we've talked about this before on the podcast, but I want to make sure that we cover it a little bit more in detail, which is packaged food products that are positioned as better for you and some of the marketing tactics that are being not only used, but amplified. And that is all a way, an umbrella story of telling you what's not in their products, right? Okay. I'm going to give you guys an example because that may sound a little bit elusive right now. Have you ever seen the suffix free on a food product, right? Like gluten-free, dairy-free, nut-free, or my favorite one, MSG-free. None of those are meaningful. (laughs) None of those are meaningful unless, let's take gluten as an example, unless you are allergic to gluten and you have celiac disease, or if you have non-celiac gluten sensitivity, those are two instances in which the free is very relevant to you, right? But I'm seeing this a lot more lately on food products. And I think a huge reason for that is because a lot of the way that we've been getting food increasingly, and certainly with the pandemic, is online, right? So in a direct-to-consumer space, in a direct-to-consumer retail space, this is a lot easier to do, and you can get away with a lot more claims than when you're going through a traditional retail channel. And that's because always retailers are often looking for FDA-approved language. And of course, there's always going to be loopholes. There's always going to be, we've talked about tons of loopholes I know on the show before, but just to kind of recap, free is only an important suffix if you have an allergy or someone in your family is intolerant or allergic to an ingredient, right? So if you have products in your home that have come to you by way of a direct mailer or a direct-to-consumer platform, it's often there that I find, and, and certainly Amazon has some ways to go with this as well, in my opinion. I mean, I think I've certainly gotten lots of products on Amazon just for the sake of testing them out, of seeing what their actual claims look like, of seeing what kinds of ingredients they're using to replace other ingredients. So it's always going to be, there's always going to be a catch when it's free. I mean, I, I take the example of like, diet designations. Like I see keto friendly 
on Amazon, on Instacart even. That's all over my Instacart. I also see that net carbs one, which I know we talked about on our last solo episode. Again, that's not defined by the FDA. It's not a fully transparent term. It's often understood as total carbs minus fiber and sugar alcohols. But like since different sugar alcohols and different types of fiber have different calorie content and are metabolized differently in your body, it's a rough, rough estimate at best. All right. So that's another example of ones in which you can see how telling you or telling or marketing to you about what's not in the product, like net carbs, we're doing a subtraction equation rather than doing an addition equation. I mean, just basic math right there, right? That's a marketing strategy of telling you what's not in the product. I would argue that the simpler, the better when it comes to food product marketing, simpler, the better, right? Less is more. I mean, it was that Coco Chanel. Who says that? Anna Winter? I don't, I don't think it was Coco Chanel. Anyway, just to give another example of this, and this is more of a specific product. I talked about this on Instagram somewhat recently, which is keto cups. They're like these keto candy cups. They're basically the example of what not to do in food marketing for a few reasons. The first is that they use really confusing language on the product packaging, which I find to be something that triggers my, my anger. <laughs> in a deep way. (laughs) Because when a product is telling you what's not in there, there's only so much real estate on that product packaging, right? Like there's only so much room to say more, to tell you more about what it is. And for someone who does not have a graduate degree in nutrition, that can be really difficult. It's really hard to know what's what if you're not sort of like having an eye out for what to look for. So to give a little more context, I, I likened the example when I, when I made this video for Instagram, I likened the example that I used to when I was growing up in the nineties, there would be like the Snackwell's cookies everywhere that would say low fat cookies, right? So to make products that were low in fat, but also taste good, you had to do what? You had to add sugar. You had to add something that made it taste better right? Otherwise it just tastes sad. It's not a cookie anymore. It's a cracker. And, for, and if you are a cookie company, that's a problem for you. Like Snackwell's is, was, I think they're, I don't know if they still exist. I should probably know that. I'm going to find out. Anyway, I'm going to use the Snackwell's example anyway, because it's still relevant for perhaps most of us listening right now. So the idea of a label saying that they removed the fat so that they could make the nutrient content claim low fat, and adding back the sugar means that ultimately calorie for calorie, these are the same, right? They're often, you know, negligible in terms of how much actual calories is in the product. But what happens when you eat it is that you're getting a lot more sugar versus fat because you wanted to eat a fucking cookie and live your life, right? So then we get this kind of disconnect between what we know from research and how it comes out in nutrition and public health communication and recommendations, right? Is that then suddenly towards the early 2000s, we started, there were more research breakthroughs. We started hearing things like, we've got to cut back on sugar. Okay. So then you have the irrelevance of products that have been marketing to you as low in fat, right? And now it's bring back the fat, get rid of the sugar. These are flash in the pan trends. It's the same reason why I've often said, you know, diets low in fat can be good for weight loss, according to research, and diets low in carbs can be good for weight loss, according to research, right? Because ultimately it's going to be about energy balance. As far as the products themselves are concerned, 
I would say that anytime you see products that are riddled with claims about what's not in there or what they're free from or what they're low in, consider what's been added in place of that nutrient, right? And honestly, I I think that that's probably not you know, the most helpful recommendation, because sometimes there may be things that you feel like could be there and you don't know. But I would say when it comes to sugar and fat, those are two perfect examples of places where in order to create the same flavor profile or to at least identify yourself as a cookie, right? I mean, you've got to have one of those in order to make it taste somewhat cookie adjacent, particularly if you're a cookie or a candy company as keto cups or as some of these like protein cookies actually are, right? Anytime you see net carbs run. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm sure. Well, actually I'm not kidding. I'm, I'm sure that there are some exceptions to that term, but I think that it's really often used on products where it should not be used or where the product itself would have just been better served by having a real food as the first ingredient, especially because, and back to my TikTok love slash rabbit hole, especially because on social media platforms at large, I see so many people talking about feeling bloated or feeling like they're like, why am I so bloated? And then they're grabbing the quest bar or like the other thing that has uh, soy protein isolate, whey protein isolate, or chicory root fiber as the first ingredient. And I know we've talked about this ad nauseum. I would definitely encourage you if you're new to the podcast to go back and listen to, I think it was my last solo episode, but I will leave a link to it in our episode notes for today. I, I think a lot of where that's coming from is that sugar alcohols are abundant now in food products. And even the ones that have been FDA evaluated, like allulose is a great example of this. They're just simply, because it's a relatively new product, the FDA is even quick to say that we don't, we saw some mild gastrointestinal symptoms, side effects, but we don't really know that it causes any severe gastrointestinal side effects. Really? What, what the fuck does that mean? You know what I mean? Because that that's very subjective. So we don't actually know. Are you saying that it's not like daily harvest where people have to have their gallbladders removed? Because that would be a severe gastrointestinal side effect. But like also bloating and gas and nausea and vomiting, all of that can be really painful and really uncomfortable. And who wants to willingly sign up for that, right? So I'd say the idea of like this pipeline... <laughs> of sugar alcohols to why am I so bloated on TikTok is a real one. And a lot of it starts with food products that tell you what's not in there versus what actually is in there. So be on the lookout for that, particularly if you're buying lots of different food products online. Okay, let's get to our next scam of all scams on food products and packaged food labels. And that, my friends, is not a new one, but It is being called out more and more lately, and I'm seeing a lot more of it, and that is greenwashing. And I say this because, again, back to my Keto Cups example, I actually noticed this on Keto Cups, and it was done in such a subtle and kind of like low-key, insidious way that it really just... It really just kind of blew my mind that this kind of thing is still on the market and essentially allowed, which is the conflation of an agricultural or growing practice with the actual nutritional value of a food product. We heard in the Lori Taylor episode, I think she says this so beautifully about conventional versus organic growing practices as it relates to produce. I mean, on the keto candy example, as just by stark contrast, this example tells you that it's USDA organic, that it's Rainforest Alliance 
certified, that it's fair trade certified as the chocolate, right? Like, so that they're talking about how they treat their employees and that has to do with your health, your personal physical health, how, right? Because it might make you feel good about yourself. And in that case, I feel good about that too. But I, I am really here to advocate for the transparency of food products themselves. And so I'm not that into it. I've got to say, especially because I think that there's a lot of confusion out there about what that really means and what those things represent. The other thing about greenwashing that bears repeating or simply stating for those who are new to the pod is that greenwashing on food products is unhelpful, right? Because it's propagating the myth that it is somehow related to your physical state of health and well-being. So if you do have a food allergy or if you simply want to actually understand what's going on in food or food products or the food products that you're buying, then I think there's something to be said for the fact that every single third-party seal, every single license, right? Like non-GMO project verified, USDA organic, um, even certified gluten-free or orthodox union to signify that something is kosher, right? All of these things are still licenses. So there is still an exchange of money in order to be able to put that seal onto a product's packaging. If you know me and you're listening now, you know that I also oversaw the food product applications for the Good Housekeeping Seal. This is very much a transparent part of the advertising model that is Good Housekeeping. I started sort of a new kind of niche um, emblem and licensing program called Good Housekeeping Nutritionist Approved. And largely what I was focused on is the transparency of the marketing claims versus the actual ingredients in a food product. Because in today's world, despite what I was just speaking about, about lots of different products being sold directly to consumers versus going through traditional retailers, the FDA does do a job, right? And they're here to do that job and to oversee those claims. And so I felt like at the time that I started this, I felt like, wow, there's really no need for us to tell people what's, you know, to for us to put a seal that says good housekeeping on it when we all can do our own research. Like the more information that's available to us, the more we're aware of what's generally beneficial for overall health and what's not. But at the same time, there's so many more nuances now and the loopholes within that FDA regulation was more interesting to me and I think more helpful to you as a consumer. So that's where that whole idea was born, but that also was very transparent. A licensing fee was exchanged for use of the emblem on all product packaging and obviously brands would have to disclose that. So just so that we're all aware, all of those programs, all of those growing practices, they still require that a certain company, that a certain food product meets a certain set of criteria, and then they need to pay in order to use that license on packaging and within marketing materials and on their website, all of that. And they need to keep those standards up to date depending on what the annual, it could be annual, it could be monthly, it could be every five years, whatever. Depending on the renewal process, that may change, but they have to meet those standards in order to use that seal. So just so that we're all aware, greenwashing has absolutely nothing to do with how health promoting a specific food product or type of food that you're that you're choosing to buy, it has nothing to do with its effect on your physical state of health. That doesn't mean that a product is good for you, quote unquote, or bad for you, quote unquote. I mean, 
do the quotations even need repeating here, but it does mean that it it's simply ancillary, but being used in a way that I think is both unhelpful and continuing to kind of propagate the disinformation that we see everywhere when it comes to food and health and the relationship between the two. Okay. So something else that caught my attention that I wanted to give an update on, I saw this today. I've actually seen it the last few days and that's because it won't go away because that's how big of a stink is being made about this topic online. And that topic is calorie deficit and whether or not that's a real thing and whether or not we should be talking about it or not. For those of you kind of just catching up is I, I happen to see this video from a dietitian whose expertise is in intuitive eating. And she has a very, very large platform, a very loud voice in our industry, perhaps in often in a very positive way. But what I think is missing from what was said about the idea of a calorie deficit is that she essentially, you know, kind of wrote it off as like, it's not, you know, it's not really, it's a disordered eating thing. Calorie deficit, I just want to let this record stand here. A calorie deficit does not necessarily imply eating disorder or not. It doesn't really have anything to do with one or the other, right? I don't know where this whole thing even begins and ends, but I've seen a lot of people responding to this online and I have not yet weighed in online because I just don't think dietitian infighting is good for anyone, but I do disagree respectfully and and here's why. Intuitive eating principles and practices and the entire evidence-based area that is the practice of intuitive eating. There is research, there is substantial research that's peer-reviewed behind this practice and this certification and training that goes into intuitive eating. We've had a number of intuitive eating experts on this podcast. And again, please go back and find all of these amazing dietitians because they're all fantastic. But it's an additional certification. We have to maintain continuing education credits for those who are just tuning into that. Yes, every health professional has to maintain continuing education credits. Some people may do this for that reason, right? I mean, other people may choose to scramble at the last second, like I did <laughs> this year. <laughs> and also, in addition to all of that, I think there's this little bit of a disconnect happening between people who are trained in intuitive eating and a conflation of their own personal relationship with or history of disordered eating with how everyone feels, right? Because we're in a world of social media, we wind up bringing things so much more than ever back to ourselves. And for people who work for themselves, they also have to market themselves, right? And I'm not saying that that this is a, any kind of implication that people are trying to trick us or be sinister about it or use their own past trauma as a marketing tool. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that the nature of the way that social media marketing works in general has created that environment for us. That's what algorithms favor. And it also is the way a lot of these algorithms that have since evolved it's the way that they were initially built. So a lot of people have built a platform off of their past history of disordered eating patterns and their recovery process, which includes an intuitive eating approach. Now, I, I wanna just zoom out for a second and say that statistically speaking, the number of people who are currently struggling with disordered eating versus the number of people who are seeking real tangible, actionable advice about what is generally included in an overall health-promoting pattern of eating versus what's not or, or what is but 
arguably less, I think is really missing right now. I think we just have a lot of people online who are either telling you that they can, promising you that they can help you lose weight, or you have people like this woman who who I'm speaking about that is saying things like calorie deficit is disordered. Neither of those things are necessarily true, right? Or necessarily beneficial for you. Actually, that's a much better way of saying it. Neither of those things are are necessarily helpful or beneficial to you. If you are looking for real, credible information, I honestly don't know that many resources that I could even list for you guys in in my episode notes that would help kind of clarify what's what. Because we're getting marketing from everywhere. We're getting it from food product packaging. We're getting it on websites. We're getting it on at retail right? I'll never forget Whole Foods always has a sort of like shelf talker every year in January. That's like your detox ingredients. And it's literally like, might as well be cleaning products that are edible, like cider vinegar and shit like that, right? Like, so we're being marketed to all the time. So the question is, you know, when you have your certification in intuitive eating, when you have done this type of continuing education, and if you've worked with an intuitive eating dietitian, I mean, most of these people are badass, incredibly smart, incredibly helpful. And so often they're just not leading with the whole, I'm going to help you lose weight by counting calories. I would argue that if you're working with a dietitian who is having you count everything, track everything you're doing all the time in a way that makes you feel like that's obsessive, that is also not best practice either right? Because the goal is to build routines and establish healthy habits in a way that's personally defined for you as an individual, not what is, you know, some sort of like trendy weight loss diet, like, or an MLM like Octavia or Prolon or one of these other fad diets. I think there's this disconnect between dietitians misusing the idea of 90% of all diets fail, which is absolutely true. That's a very well-established statistic. But as dietitians, we're not putting people on diets. <laughs> that's that's where you lose me, right? Like just because we're willing to help you or others are not, I guess, but I mean, many of us who have worked in the area of weight loss are aware of the idea that many people do need help knowing where to begin. And so if we have that training and expertise and experience, then it's really our professional responsibility to help people do that in a way that's safe, effective, and helpful and clarifying, because there's just so many ways that we can get confused in 2022 about what is a real thing versus what's not a thing versus what's a fad. I think that's getting even more confusing than ever, especially when keto friendly is on a fucking banner on Amazon. Like it's nuts. So there's lots of information out there that I think is there to serve as something more confusing. Calorie deficit is a real thing. And it is a a sort of a place that you need to get to if you are looking to lose weight. However, the way that you get to a calorie deficit may be disordered. She's absolutely right about that. That's an absolutely true statement, but it's not true for everyone. So just want to make that crystal clear and make sure we kind of repeat that as often and as frequently as possible. When I hear this shit online from dietitians saying we need to be completely free of diet culture and that being in a calorie deficit would be a bad thing or that people, someone should feel bad about that, I just want to correct the idea that this is implicitly negative, right? For those who need it, for those who are seeking 
to establish healthier habits and healthier routines. And a part of that becomes losing weight as an overall outcome of you making healthier food choices, being more active, more physically active, getting more rest at night, you know, staying hydrated from unsweetened beverages, all of the things that are, are I speak about over and over again, I feel like, then establishing those routines is really our job. Helping people establish those routines is really a huge part of our job, especially if we're in the business of preventative healthcare, which is really strongly where I stand. All right. So I hope that clarifies that one. All right. Let's get into our next scam. <laughs> this is not a scam. This is actually not a scam. Another one that's kind of confusing. Gosh, we're going to have to come up with a good title for this episode. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about off-label weight loss medications and endoscopic gastric sleeve. I have seen a couple of news items. Actually, it's not just a couple. This is, has been at the top of my Google News tab about weight loss of late. And it's kind of freaking me out. And I honestly, I'm going to talk this out with you, my dearest of dear listener, but I'm not really sure where I stand other than to feel trepidatious about this whole thing. So uh, if you're familiar or if you've ever been prescribed Ozempic, GLP-1 receptor medications are, are these ones that act on your gut hormones to suppress or increase your appetite. They essentially begin a cascade of metabolic reactions that has the ultimate effect of appetite suppression, which then helps many people lose weight. Now, here's the thing. These drugs, and Munjaro is another one, so Ozempic and Munjaro, the ones that are kind of being talked about, again, all over digital media and social media everywhere, all of these things have been evaluated and studied for type 2 diabetes. They have not been studied for weight loss. So when we're hearing, I just saw an article, I want to say yesterday, about Ozempic having a shortage because of TikTok, literally because of TikTok, because people are being prescribed this medication for weight loss and not to treat type 2 diabetes. And I mean, the more you know, the more confused you are. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, does anyone else feel me on that? When it comes to this topic, I think it's again, kind of an important point to make to say that zooming out is arguably the most important thing that we can do. If you can't get a medication for whatever reason, and you've been using it as a way to lose weight, but you have not established the healthy routines, the habits, the food patterns, the choices that you make when you're dining out, when you're on the road, when you're running around chasing your puppy like I am most of the time. If you haven't established those routines, then in the absence of the thing that's been suppressing your appetite, if you can't get it, then what happens? You'll gain the weight back not because of something that's wrong with you, although you might feel that way, right? You'll gain it back because you were relying on a medication to suppress your appetite versus actually teaching yourself how to eat nourishing meals and snacks that are satiety promoting and therefore help you stay satisfied for a longer period, right? So the same is true for something I just recently read about a gastric sleeve that is sort of that is done via an endoscopic procedure. 
And that kind of freaked me out too, because so there's so often, and, and I know plenty of dietitians who specialize in bariatric surgery. I mean, the real deal bariatric surgery where you're, you're, they're going in with the knife, you know what I mean? And so often, so many patients gain back the weight that they lost from a surgery, even though their stomach is technically much smaller, but there's always a workaround. Fixing is different from working on, right? Like if you're not working toward establishing those patterns before and then after the surgery, then it's very easy for your body to adjust to going right back to where it was because your stomach is actually, it's a muscle, right? Like it, it can expand and become smaller depending on how we nourish ourselves. So that can only take you so far. So surgeries, medications that result in weight loss, these are still always going to be only as good as your ability to essentially rise to the occasion. I hate to use that expression because I think it's a little bit, kind of sounds like a little bit mean. I don't mean rise to the occasion as much as I mean like your ability to meet the moment. (laughs) I think that's a better way of saying it. Your ability to meet the moment, your desire, what you are really looking to achieve by losing weight in general. Now, there are really serious side effects to these medications. Anything that's acting on your gut hormones is is arguably almost always going to make you at least a little bit nauseous. I can see how it's possible that there are ways in which being prescribed a medication with this type of side effect can have a benefit, and that is in the sense that it can give you a slight mental shift right? It's something I've talked about a lot as it relates to actually really low carb diets, which have this kind of like seductive effect of having you lose water weight instantly, which makes you feel more motivated to keep going, right? And in the same way, if your appetite is suppressed by nature of taking a medication, then that can feel motivating as well. It can feel like, oh, this, this might, I wonder if I'll lose weight this way. Right. And then you lose, let's say a pound or two a week. And that makes you feel really motivated to continue to either take the medication or take the medication and also make those lifestyle changes. But I think it's really important to remember that the lifestyle really matters. It's the backbone of everything that we do. There's always a workaround for just about anything. If you want it badly enough, I mean, that's a sad reality, but it's also the truth. So I think that's really the fundamental. The other thing and the last thing I want to say on this topic is that I feel strongly about the idea that a key measure of success with any intervention, weight loss, eating plan, is sticking with the general tenets of that plan, right? And this this is true of weight loss medication just as it is with a restrictive diet. It's sticking with that plan for life. If something's too restrictive or too temporary or too much of a flash in the pan to work for you forever, it can lead to weight cycling, which is something I just don't think we talk about enough. Weight cycling is the process by which you gain a lot of weight and lose a lot of weight. The the kind of like yo-yo dieting side effects when you're on or off of a diet, of a weight loss diet that's extremely restrictive, which can also lead to some serious health complications like impaired glucose tolerance. So yes, you may wind up on that type two diabetes medication later on in life. It can also lead to chronic inflammation and possibly link back to cardiovascular disease risk. And not to mention, it can also really significantly increase risk of depression and anxiety, which I I think is another thing that we're all hearing so much more about, talking more about, which is great. But at the same time, if we're going to talk so much about it, then we need to be aware that this is a risk factor. Weight cycling is a risk factor for depression and anxiety. And 
The worst of all for people who are doing these things and taking these chances with things like endoscopic weight loss surgery or taking a an off-label diabetes medication for the purpose of weight loss is that ultimately weight cycling can make weight loss, as in permanent weight loss that becomes weight maintenance over time, it can make that more difficult the more often you do it. Let me say that again. It can make weight loss more difficult the more often you go up and down. That's well-established scientific research. So, so with that in mind, how much of a risk are you willing to take with some of these more serious or more expensive interventions? And part two of that question is, are you willing to put in the time and the effort to establish those lifestyle shifts that will help you stick with this as a part of an overall healthy habits foundation over time for the rest of your life? Those are are two of the the greatest indicators, the, the sort of greatest questions that I would ask any patient before taking that step toward going on a medication or getting an endoscopic, um, laparoscopic, gastric bypass, any of those types of weight loss surgeries. Those are the big questions to ask yourself. How much of a risk am I willing to take with this? And am I willing to put in the time, energy, effort? Do I have the bandwidth to establish the lifestyle changes that are necessary to stick with this? All right. Let's talk about two bees in my bonnet. They're just two little ones. I just feel like I need to share them here. You know, the dollar menu at McDonald's, there's no such thing anymore. You guys, you heard that right. Yes. There's no such thing anymore. It's now a dollar. It's now dollar is a thing of the past. It's a two and $3 menu these days. And I say that because I recently went to get some fries there and it was, I mean, that was upwards of $3. Okay. So there's no more dollar menu. That's a sad day because that means we're in really inflationary times. And the second thing I want to say, there's a sprouted grain bread on the menu at Panera who also loves its own digital or, or broadcast media advertising budget so much that it's willing to spend on the key, the prime time slots on ABC and NBC to tell you about how their new menu with clean ingredients is still here. It's still a thing. They're still doubling down on the whole, we have clean ingredients here at Panera. And yet I really can't find very many things on that menu for less than a thousand milligrams of sodium per serving without making a number of different customization changes. So word to the wise, McDonald's is amazing, but it's kind of pricey and Panera is full of it, but sometimes they have a decent Greek salad. Okay. Let's get into the good stuff. Let's talk about the happy things that are happening in food and nutrition marketing. Okay. A number of these are going to be things that you may have seen before and may not have noticed are going to be some game changers, I think, personally. All right. I like to call this one partners enjoy. So partnerships like Truff and Hidden Valley and Burger King um, was just doing one recently, but another good example of this is Coke and Constellation are doing a Fresca cocktail. And one of my personal favorites, Instacart and Lizzo have a partnership. So this kind of like new era of partnerships, I think speaks to two things really significantly. One is the idea of nostalgia. So if you work for a food brand, or if you are interested in food and what's happening in the world of food and nutrition marketing, the idea of bringing back that nostalgia of something that like 
you've known about your whole life and you may have loved or you may still love like a Hidden Valley Ranch, for example, paired with a truffle hot sauce for a limited time order, that that's brilliant stuff. I mean, I'd buy that in a second. I didn't even know about that until this week and I feel upset because it means that I, what if I don't get my hands on that? Someone please send me some truffle hot sauce with ranch, please. I'm just kidding. Okay. But I'm not really kidding. I, I'll send you my address. Coke and Constellation. I've heard about this for a while now. I think that one's really interesting just because Fresca is a zero calorie beverage. We need Fresca. I love Fresca. You know how I feel about Fresca listeners. If you're longtime listeners, you know this. I love it. Nothing more refreshing than a good Fresca. What's wrong with a Fresca cocktail? Nothing as far as I can tell, as long as they keep that no added sugar, as long as they're keeping that sugar low, I'm happy. And the Instacart and Lizzo thing, I think is a, is a giant signal to the food industry in general, which is, you know, the second part of this kind of topic, this overall general trend that I, I feel like we're seeing so much more of now, which is creators and, and musicians and people with huge platforms having their own sort of line as a partnership with a retailer. This is the first time we've seen something like that, right? Like it's not like in the early 2000s, you ever saw anything that's like Kate Hudson's food line at Walmart. Do you know what I mean? Like that wasn't a thing. So having this kind of partnership with a platform like that, and that it's like Lizzo's curated items on the Instacart platform that are curated for your location. I mean, first of all, that's kind of impressive interface right there, kind of an impressive user experience, but it's also a really interesting signal to the rest of the the sort of grocery supermarket world, which is that thinking about creative ways for retailers and creators to, to come together to create these curated experiences is a way of doing that for the food industry, right? Like it's a way of saying so-and-so's picking out the, well, I mean, so-and-so Lizzo's picking out her Takis, but she's also got her charging device. Like it's a great way for the platform itself to show you what kind of products and items are available on its platform. And it's also a great way of attaching a huge name to your brand and also just kind of doubling down on one influencer, right? Like this is just one partnership. We don't know what's going to come in the future with Instacart and their brand partnerships. But to me, I thought that was really fascinating. It's really fascinating to see someone that they know is like a beloved Gen Zer right? Out there doing a partnership and curating items that she loves on the platform. So more to come on that front. I think it's a general positive. I think some of these limited time offering flavors, the partners enjoy like Truff, like Burger King, like Coke and like Instacart and and Lizzo specifically, I think some of these make for more interesting and unique opportunities for both creators and for brands themselves to bring food into the conversation in a way that could be generally positive. Of course, I say that with the caveat that, you know, we're just talking about how direct to consumer can sometimes have its downsides, but there's always going to be, you know, pros and cons of anything. And this one looks pretty positive from where I'm sitting. I think this has a lot of potential. All right. Mini treats, sweet mini treats. Okay. You guys know how I feel about candy. Most transparent thing in the world. Literally, you're never reaching for candy thinking it's a green juice, right? Like you see a Kit Kat and you know, it's a fucking Kit Kat, not, not a, a, cure-all for all of your ailments. It's not going to help your back feel better. 
misty. You know what I mean? Like it's not, it's not the cure all. And now there's even more of, of a sort of transparency push through the idea of portion control. The candy industry released a press release. I think it was like earlier this week. Yeah, it was earlier this week. And it was a pledge that they made with partnership for healthier America. Basically the idea is to help contribute to reducing added sugar in the American diet by offering more products that have 200 calories or fewer, which is honestly... I think one of the greatest delights of our time, right? Like, do you ever finish a meal and you're like, I just want a little sweet treat, but I don't need to have the whole thing. That's a beautiful thing. So I would say, let's just have a little, a little Lahayim, a little Mazel Tov for the candy industry. Go you and your 200 calorie sweets and have those stuffed in your bag so that when you go out or you're on the road or you're anywhere, you've got a sweet delight for you to just sink your teeth into and then call your dentist. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Take those with you. I love it. I think it's a great way to enjoy a smaller indulgence. You're not sacrificing the ingredient quality. You're using the same things, but you're arguably getting less added sugar by nature of what it is, which is still a real delicious indulgence in just a smaller form. Now, I can't speak to the rest of where we find added sugar in the American diet because, frankly, we haven't seen that much good stuff coming from lots of the other places where this is sneaking in to all these different types of foods and meals and snacks and things that are marketed to you as USDA organic but secretly have 30 grams of added sugar, right? Like, So this is only one small part of the industry, but I mean, I did cover where the industry was kind of sucking. So I feel like I have to, I have to say this and it's worth raising a glass to. Am I right? All right. So I want to say something else. It's kind of adjacent to the brand partnerships, but it's a little bit different. So I've seen another thing happening in the food marketing world, the brand partnerships world, where creators are essentially getting their own food brands. And I think it's fascinating. We saw it first with the ultimate Gen Zer, Emma Chamberlain, who has a coffee line. And honestly, If anyone is listening to this right now and is like, Jackie, you should have a coffee line, I would say, I should. I know I should. Do you know anyone who wants me to have one? (laughs) Because what's beautiful about Emma Chamberlain's coffee line is that it's coffee, people. Coffee comes from a plant. It's a a bean. Coffee beans come from plants. (laughs) So It's a beautiful thing when you can see partnerships that are actually in a nutrition-related space. I mean, you know, I talk about this a lot about there's so many health benefits to coffee and tea as long as, you know, you're not drinking them in the ultimate like added sugar form. There's so many benefits to that, to drinking coffee as far as your caffeine tolerance goes. We can save that for another time. But for the sake of you having coffee and tea as a part of an overall health-promoting pattern of eating, yes, absolutely here for it. And certainly so is Emma Chamberlain. And I think that's really an interesting space for people who are not necessarily in the food industry to also kind of dip a toe. What I think is a great thing about this is that there's lots of potential upside to this. And I use coffee as that example here specifically for for that reason, which is that when we speak about, or when, when the Gen Zs talk about Emma Chamberlain, the focus has nothing to do with nutrition and health. It just has to do with her openness and transparency and the popularity of her YouTube channel and podcast. And and there's so much upside to the idea of her attaching her name to something that's not 
pushing you toward a weight loss specific claim or weight loss diet or you know that she's not positioning herself as the next Gwyneth Paltrow if anything it's quite it's quite the opposite is true right so being able to have your engaged community and speak to them about things you love. And some of those things by nature of what they are, are just going to be some that fall into the category of things we could definitely include more of in our everyday meals and snacks. That's a great thing because it's really getting an engaged customer in at the ground level and also doing so in a way that's ethical and helpful for someone to establish overall health promoting eating patterns. So go you, Emma Chamberlain, Maybe you'll be a guest on the On The Side podcast. How about that? Anyway, this is happening all over the place, and some of them are less nutritious than others, so something to keep an eye on for sure. To wrap all of this up, I want to give another huge shout-out also to a celeb. And (laughs) it's one that's been in the news a lot, but it's a lesser-known component of the story. So obviously, if you're anything like me, true millennial, then you are following all of this drama with the Don't Worry Darling premiere overseas in Venice. And I happened to catch a news item on this. And then of course, like my computer is definitely watching me at all times. And I was fed a YouTube video that was from Harper's Bazaar and it's Florence Pugh's What I Eat in a Day with Harper's Bazaar. Now, what I eat in a day online is very controversial, right? Like you've got, of course, your intuitive eating folks being like, this is horrible. This is so bad. This is diet culture, which yes, point taken. It can be, right? And then you've got your trainers and your fitness influencers in their like Lululemons, if that's still cool. I don't even know. I'm buying workout gear at Target. Okay. In their Lululemons, they're, they're running around being like, this is what I eat in a day. And it's my vegan collagen protein smoothie and my green juice and like all this other nonsense that no one needs. And I happen to stumble on this. And I think also, by the way, I should give a shout out to the team at Harper's Bazaar, who is doing a phenomenal job on their version of this series. Granted, you're always going to be subject to the content that the celebrity or influencer is actually, you know, giving you on those platforms. Like, right. Like it's going to be, if Kelly Ripa is eating like one cashew for the day, there's only so much that a great team can do even with that. (laughs) But what I loved about Florence Pugh's version of what I eat in a day is that you get the sense when you watch this video, that this is someone who truly appreciates and enjoys and loves every single bite of food, right? This is not a diet culture driven, you know, everyone must have an underlying eating disorder. And so there's got to be a reason why she even can know what she eats in a day. No, it's not that. It's also not, I'm just going to town on every single hot fudge sundae or, or chocolate cake that I see in my wake. I'm just hoovering all the foods. No, it's not that either. It really shows you what a true love and respect for and appreciation she has for food. And it is the perfect case for the pros of what I eat in a day. I would highly recommend watching it if you haven't seen it. I think you will feel very similarly. And regardless of how you feel, I would love to hear it from you. So please let me know what you think about this episode. I want to end it on a high note by leaving you with that little nugget of beauty that is Florence Pugh. I also, by the way, I don't know that she has a partnership with Operol Spritz or Operol, for example, but 
I mean, you guys saw that thing online that she posted that her, her stylist posted a picture of her with the spritz and she's like looking fabulous walking into the Venice film festival. And I just thought that again is a great example of you enjoying food and beverage in this case in a way that's special and celebratory and also probably a middle finger to Olivia Wilde, but who cares because it was just so amazing, right? Like that's also another way that she's showing us that she loves food and she loves drinking in a way that's, that's responsible in a way that's not an extreme of one kind or another, right? It's showing us what real, genuine, actual balance looks like. I am going to leave it on that note. Think about that. Think about what that means for you. What does real, actual balance really mean for you? And tell me what you think about today's episode. If you like it, if you hate it, if you want none of it, if you want to hear more solo episodes, I am here to give the people, give the listeners what they want. What are you guys interested in hearing more about? I'm here to provide it. So you can always reach out to me at Jacqueline London RD, but really, if you have a sec, and I know you do because you're listening on a podcast streaming platform right now, then go ahead and leave a five-star review and a note that just shares your feelings, your thoughts, what you think of the episode, what you want to hear more about. And I would so deeply appreciate it. You can also feel free to take a screenshot of today's episode and share it with friends, with colleagues, with coworkers, with whomever you think might have a little nugget or something to hear that might be of interest to them in today's episode. And I can't wait to hear from you soon. And thanks for spending your one hour with me. I appreciate you guys so much. All right. I will see you next week for another episode of On the Side with Jackie London. And that's it for today. Bye guys. Thanks so much for tuning in today to this episode of On the Side with Jackie London. If you enjoyed today's episode, please snap a screenshot of your podcast app on your phone, post it to your Instagram stories, and tag me at Jacqueline London RD to let me know your favorite takeaway from any part of the episode. If you're loving the show, if there's a topic you'd love to hear more about or a guest you'd love to listen to here, I'd absolutely love to hear from you. You can scroll down on your podcast app to where it says ratings and reviews and rate this one five stars, of course, and share your feedback. Your words might just be what the next person needs to tune in and start feeling more empowered and living better, one meal or snack at a time. Of course, be sure to follow On The Side wherever you get your podcasts to ensure you won't miss out on any episodes. And remember to check us out. Check out the Q&A deep dive on the On The Side YouTube channel. This show is produced and edited by Elizabeth Evans Media Productions. I'm your host and executive producer, Jacqueline London. Keep in mind that any advice provided on this podcast is based off of my clinical judgment and application of research and practice as a registered dietitian, and it should not take the place of medical advice from your own personal physician. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.